To fully understand our domestic cattle markets, we're going to need a pretty good grasp on the global beef supply. When you're on the ranch, you don't realize when you're out there calving or pushing cows or whatever, the global footprint that you really have. Brett Stewart with Global Agritrends is my guest as we talk world beef supply numbers. And so we're in a spot here where three of the biggest global beef exporters on earth are going to be moving through tight supplies over the next four years. What countries are driving U.S. beef exports and why? Plus, we'll address why there are beef imports from other countries as well as some of our concerns on imports. And finally, why the long-term forecast for global beef supplies sheds a positive light on the future for our cattle prices. My 10-year forecast said we're only going to produce half the growth needed of beef over the next 10 years. It's a global and domestic outlook of our cattle supply numbers on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Welcome you to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. We're glad to have you along here today. This is episode 123. And if you missed something and you want to go back and listen to it again, you can find us on our podcast website at workingranchradio.com or you can also find us on pretty much any podcast provider out there as well. Well, I hope your summer is underway in good fashion. And uh, we, we, of course, here on the X-Ring Ranch, we were able to get calves branded last weekend. So that was good to get that done and kind of get things moving to the next step as we get cattle pushed out to grass and get ready for breeding season. Of course, we won't be putting bulls out till about the 25th of July on the cows. We have heifers to start a little bit sooner than that, but uh, we are moving and things are getting a little rain here, and that's always a positive thing when we look ahead for our summer activities. Well, on our guest here today, it's going to be Brett Stewart. He is with Global Agritrends. We're going to be talking a lot of information today as we talk world global beef supply numbers and how that also affects our domestic supply numbers, our domestic markets, I should say, and just how that all correlates. We're going to be talking imports as well, both the good and the bad on that. And really, uh, he's going to give us some insight as far as when we look at global beef supply numbers on a very long-term basis and the gap that we're beginning to see in terms of those supply numbers with our growing population. So just a lot of information out there that will help us as ranchers, uh, both in understanding our domestic market but also how that is affected by the global numbers out there as well. So a great program here today. Brett Stewart with Global Agritrends, my guest here today. A thank you to our sponsors as well on the Working Ranch Radio Show. All Flex cattle identification record keeping should be easy. And you can tie now your visual tag with your EID tag and your genetic data to one management number with the All Flex match sets. You can find out more at allflexusa.com. Inherit Select from Zoetis, providing commercial cattle calf producers with genetic insights to make replacement female selection and breeding decisions. Find out more at InheritProgress.com. And the American Gelvie Association, a highly fertile, moderately framed cow that raises high-performing calves even in tough environments. Now that's doing more with less. The Gelvie cow's efficient use of resources make her the picture of sustainability in today's modern beef industry. Find out more at Gelvie.org. And MLS Tubs, don't gamble with fly control this summer. MLS tubs are a sure bet. All kinds of tubs for all kinds of needs. Learn more about it at MLSTubs.com. And finally, Tank Toad, your remote water monitoring system. You can call Metal Arch Solutions today for more information at 801-252-6135 or their website at TankToad.com. It's what we use here on the X-Ring Ranch. Well, let's check in now with the captain, Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. Probably half of you are going around and around and around the field, haying and doing whatever. Uh, If you're bored, well, then go back and check out the back episodes of this amazing podcast. Justin's got a lot of good information back there. Now, Justin, I want you to check out this down the road for uh, an episode. Approximately every five years, the beef cattle industry undergoes a national beef quality audit funded by the Beef Checkoff to help determine quality confirmation of the U.S. beef supply. Reports detailing 2022 NBQA results are now available at bqa.org. 
the market cows and bulls and fed cattle reports outline where the beef supply chain is making positive changes as well as areas for beef improvement. Now, here's a quote from Dr. Trey Patterson, CEO of the Padlock Ranch and chair of the Beef Quality Assurance Advisory Group. The NBQA gives us an idea of what we need to be focusing on as an industry. We can celebrate successes in safety, quality, and efficiency, and we can challenge ourselves on what we can do better. Since 1991, that's that's his quote. Since 1991, the NBQA BQA provides an understanding of what quality means to the various industry sectors and the value of those quality attributes. This research helps the industry make modifications necessary to increase the value of its products. So, Justin, I've been involved in quite a few of these over the years, one or two up in Canada, and I got to tell you, it's extremely important for us to, to go all the way from the cow-calf end of it to the plate and what happens in between, uh, especially at the plant and in tra- during transportation, and all the things that we do all the way back to giving calves vaccinations when they're when they're young, that makes a big big difference in what we present to the meat case. And and these beef quality audits are extremely important. I have seen the importance of them through the years. The 22 one is up. Justin, go after it. Maybe you can get an interview with uh, somebody that kind of fill you in on on where we're at with this and give us an update. Thanks, and uh, have a good show, Justin. All right, thanks, Captain. And yeah, some valuable information in that audit for there for the BQA. And I would uh, look forward to a conversation with Dr. Trey Patterson. I'll see what we can get put together on that. Well, stay with us. Coming up next, Brett Stewart with Global AgriTrends joins us as we get into the global beef supply numbers and its effect on our domestic markets. We'll be back on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. Every year you pick your replacement heifers. Some become profitable cows, others disappoint. How can you make more reliable selections? Genetic testing. Commercial cow-calf producers like you are using Inherit Select from Zoetis. You gain valuable predictions, including cow fertility, size and soundness, feed efficiency, growth and carcass merit, as well as easy to use economic indexes. This improves your selection, breeding, and marketing decisions. Request a call from InheritProgress.com and ask about free TSUs to get you started. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. As we head now into our featured interview here today is we're going to take a real broad look at our cattle market outlook, but more from a a real global aspect as we look at this, because in in reality, when we do look at our agricultural markets, uh, we are on a somewhat of a worldwide market. Then there's other elements that do affect us. And so joining us here today is Brett Stewart. He is a founding partner of Global AgriTrends. And Brett, thanks for joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Hey, great to be with you, Justin. Thanks. Well, before we get into some of the details we want to talk about, let's let's talk a little bit about Global AgriTrends. What do you do there? So uh, this is a company I started in 2006. Uh, we advise companies all over the world on global agriculture conditions, mainly focused on proteins, beef, pork, poultry. We do analysis and uh, market research in those as well as a little bit in the grains and the dairy markets. We've got clients, Justin, all over the world. We advise banks, ag banks, hedge funds, Wall Street banks, meat processors, exporters, importers, uh, feedlots, hog farmers, pharmaceuticals, chicken companies, (laughs) fill in the blank. Basically anyone that wants to keep a finger on the pulse of the global markets. You bet. So you're probably on the road quite a bit too of about uh, different conferences and conventions, I'm guessing too, which keeps you pretty busy. Yeah, plenty, plenty of travel, <laughs> but uh, it's good. It's enjoyable. You know, Justin, I grew up on a cattle ranch in Southwest Wyoming. And so I grew up ranching and I've worked on a, I've worked for a brand of beef company and worked in the feedlot sector and managed cattle on feed. And from beginning to end, I think back of, of pushing cows on the dusty Wyoming plains there. <laughs> And uh, what it's come to today that I sit and analyze beef, I've, I've eaten A5 Wagyu beef in Japan. I've seen plow oxen in China. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been able to <laughs> be around the world. I wish I could just distill that all down for your listeners because this, this cattle world, when you're on the ranch, and you know, we, like I say, we ranch right there on the Utah-Wyoming border. When you're on the ranch, you don't realize when you're out there calving or pushing cows or whatever, the global footprint that you really have. Yeah. Uh, you know, the vast majority of the tongues out of those cattle are going to be eaten in Japan. 
a big chunk of the livers are going to be eaten in Egypt. It's uh, it's mm. pretty incredible. Yeah. And that was why I was interested in having you on the show is because I think sometimes you, you nailed it right on in, in that we really do get busy with what we're doing here on the place. And, and that's not a disrespectful comment. That's just the, that's the facts of life. Uh, you know, as you right. and I were talking before we went on air, we just finished up branding last week and you know, you're, you're busy with that. You're getting gra- cattle to grass. You're getting ready for breeding season, things like like that and so sometimes we get our head buried and we uh we don't really know what's going on out there and, and that was one of the reasons to have you on the show a little bit as you and i were talking before we uh we started here in our conversation on air last week when you and i talked a bit as uh, start the process of setting this show up a lot of optimism you feel in the markets and we've heard that you know we've heard the outlook is looking like for our markets here but let's look at this from a global standpoint just to start and you really see a lot of optimism in this market going forward. Yeah, it's interesting, Justin, when you look around the world and we're all aware of what's going on in the US, we've went through a drought, we've liquidated almost 2 million beef cows. We're starting to see the prices lift. But when you look around the global markets at what's going on, it's interesting. We are in a spot here and I've been doing this for most of the last 20 years. I've never seen a situation like this. But when I look out at what's going on in Brazil, Brazil has aggressively killed females to supply the Chinese market. China's a whole different ball of wax. We can talk about that here in a minute, but mm-hmm. Brazil has overkilled their herd to try and fulfill orders and keep beef going to China. As a result, they're in a spot where their female herd, I think is tight. Now in the global markets, we don't have data. We don't have a USDA in Brazil doing what our USDA does. So everything's guessing. and. And that's what I've made a living on, is guessing what's going on in the markets in China, supplies out of Brazil, Australia, et cetera. Long story short, due to our weather pattern and the inverse of our weather pattern in Australia, as well as what's going on in Brazil, we are expecting that the combined slaughter rates, total slaughter out of Australia plus Brazil plus the US, we've got that slaughter down 10% from 2023 to 2027. Hmm. And so we're in a spot here where three of the biggest global beef exporters on earth are going to be moving through tight supplies over the next four years. I'm not just talking about what we're hearing on calves now or what I think they're going to do next year. From a global basis, we've got support here for years out. Mm-hmm. When you talk about this export market and our global market, let's put it into perspective as far as what that does. How does how much of an effect do we see from the global market on our U.S. market? I know, and maybe yeah. I'm not phrasing that question right, but I feel like sometimes we're really consumed about our domestic market here in the U.S. And it is a big part of our industry, so I don't want to downplay that. But at the same time, I don't think we quite understand. At least I don't quite understand really the implications that we we see from that global beef market as a whole and its effect on us here in the U.S. Yeah, I get what you're saying, Justin. So yeah, when you're sitting there on the ranch, you say, oh, the price that those Japanese pay for beef tongues is a long ways from what I get paid for my calves, right? And there's a lot of interactions and, mm-hmm. and transactions in between those two. So you can look at it pretty simply this way. Exports on a tonnage basis we export about 10% of our beef production. About 10% of the beef pounds goes out of the country. Now, I run a um, little metric here. I take export dollars as a percent of the Fed steer value. That export dollars as a percent of the Fed steer value 10, 15 years ago, it was about 10%, about the same as the volume. Today, it's well over 20%. Hmm. So we export 10% of our production and over 20% of our value. Okay. And that's just happened in the last 10, 15 years. I'll tell you, it is shocking. And I haven't been to China since COVID, but 2019, I was over there three times. I've been to China pretty much every year for the last 20 years. And what's happened just in China alone is pretty shocking. And to see that beef demand come on, I mean, for years, I'd go to China and eat pork mm-hmm. every meal. Mm-hmm. Or if I ate beef, it was old dairy cow mm-hmm. beef, some real yeah. lean beef, and they'd boil it, boiled beef. The last eight years in China, Every restaurant, you go through those big malls in Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou, every restaurant has a picture of white fat marbled beef in the window. Hmm. And it is, I don't know how to explain it. It's like cell phones or cars. It is the new thing in China. And so historically, we used to sell a lot of beef into North Asia, North America and North Asia, Canada, Mexico, Japan, and Korea. Mm -hmm. That was the majority of our beef. Selling beef to Japan and Korea, they had a pretty cozy agreement how they allocated the the cuts. 
And then China comes into the market. And all I can say for a cattle guy, it's kind of like if you've ever been at the sale barn and there's two guys buying cold cows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you've been there, right, Justin? Yeah. Two guys. And you're watching cold cows sell going, I kind of feel like I'm getting pillaged here. I feel like something's <laughs> going on. What happens when that third guy walks in and starts bidding? Mm -hmm. yeah. Then you find out yeah. I'm getting I'm getting a fair price. And that's what happened when China came into the global markets. All of a sudden, Japan and Korea just flat could not keep up. And uh, what we've seen just here recently, Japan is the one least able to step in the ring and bid with those guys. And so China coming into the market really increased the value of our export dollars. Yeah. How active is Australia and Brazil trying to hit that China market? I mean, are we all three hard competing oh, yeah. on China? Yeah, Brazil's the biggest supplier by a mile. Oh, really? Um, they're, they're supplying the most beef, Uruguay, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand. But here's the deal. When you talk about grain-fed beef, and I told you those pitchers all have white fat marble beef. Now, mm -hmm. all those restaurants don't have white fat marble beef, but all the pitchers mm -hmm. are. White fat marble beef is only produced in the U.S., in Canada, and about 30% of Australia. And so in that Chinese market, there's a lot of Australian beef, Brazilian beef going in that's a $1.50 pound cheaper than ours. The highest price imported beef into China month in, month out is the US and it's by a wide margin. And so we're in a unique spot. When I look at global beef production, if I go back to 2000, the year 2000, 23 years ago, the total production of grass-fed beef in the world has increased about four and a half million tons. The increase in water buffalo, that's out of India, that's increased three million tons. The total supply of grain-fed beef on the planet in 2023 versus the year 2000, it's going to be almost the same. Hmm. So think about that. So you can't just look at global beef supplies. These are different products. So in 23 years, we've added 1.8 billion people to the planet. We've added 43 trillion in global GDP. And 2023 and next year, 2024, the world's going to have almost the identical amount of grain-fed beef that we did 23 years ago. Hmm. That's because of our liquidation and Canada's liquidation. We were up about a million tons in 2022. But this global market for grain-fed beef is truly incredible. Yeah. Well, interesting. A lot of a lot of interesting data there. And we're not done, folks. Uh, my guest today is Brett Stewart. He is a founding partner of Global AgriTrends. We've got two more segments where he's going to join us. We're going to continue to talk about this global beef market. And I know when we start talking global beef market, as we've talked already a little bit ago uh, about uh, the three biggest beef exporters in the world are the U.S., Brazil, and Australia. But what about uh, the beef coming into the United States? We're going to talk a little bit about that, and we're going to continue to talk about what we see going forward when we return here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Don't gamble with fly control this summer. MLS tubs are a sure bet. MLS high-performance, low-moisture cooked molasses tubs provide controlled, consistent supplement delivery to your cattle, horses, sheep, and goats. MLS takes pride in their line of products that are proven to lower your feed supplement costs. All kinds of tubs for all kinds of needs. Learn more about MLS tubs at mlstubs.com. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. My guest today is Brett Stewart with Global AgriTrends. We are talking global uh, beef market outlook. And uh, in, a, in our next segment, we're going to dial down a little bit closer. We'll be talking a little bit about the U.S. market. But uh, just in general, uh, we were talking uh, earlier just about where this global market is. And, and Brett, just to recap a bit, again, uh, as you and I were talking last week, as we talked before we went on air, really all three of the biggest global ex beef exporters in the world are seeing a reduction in their beef herds and it's just i mean simply a supply and demand issue that's going to see really huge big tight supplies that we're going to see going forward right that's right yeah it's a unique spot uh, like i say it's very interesting now brazil and australia are a year maybe two years behind us mm -hmm. which is just going to hopefully perpetuate what we're starting to go into now as we go into a rebuild into next year kind of keep it going longer is what that would sound to me like we would see that that, right. that yeah so w w when we talk about the, the three biggest exporters u.s brazil and australia then i know one of the touchy subjects for us as american ranchers is 
we're always concerned about what are we bringing into our country? I mean, it's it's kind of like when we talk about our oil supply, we talk about the same thing. It's like, why are we bringing in oil when we've got the ability to produce it ourselves? So let's let's dial into that just a little bit because we uh, the U.S. is an importer of beef. And so talk about that element of our market. Yeah, we're now the number two importer of beef uh, behind China. China's now surpassed us. So in terms of imports, and I went down this road, you know, I'm from the cattle producer standpoint of I'm with you. Why are we importing beef? We produce the best beef in the world, right? (laughs) You kind of got to go back through history. And I worked uh, for a few years for the U.S. Meat Export Federation in Denver. And uh, if you go back to the history of why we export and what these markets do, look at Japan. You have to go back, clear back into the 1980s and 1990s when we really opened up Japan and started exporting beef. Those Asian markets eat different cuts than we do. They love short plates. Most people don't know what a short plate is. It's the same thing as a pork belly on a steer. It's basically that belly on a steer. It's real fatty. They like chuck rolls, uh, even briskets. Some of those fattier cuts, um, short ribs, things that we just really didn't utilize in full, those North Asian markets love. And so one thing that happened over time is that's a lot of the cuts that would end up in our trim pile. We would take short plates and navels and short ribs and some of those things. A lot of that would go into trim and it would be ground for hamburger. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens with imports is all of a sudden we say, hey, we got buyers over here that'll pay three, four, five dollars a pound for these cuts. Let's go ahead and ship them out. We tighten our trim supply. And in return, we end up importing beef, whether it's from Canada, Mexico, Australia, for a dollar fifty a pound less. And so really in that trade, we're upgrading those cuts. We're going and finding the highest bid in the world for every cut. Mm -hmm. And so as a beef producer, I want every cut from my steer to go to the highest buyer on earth. Now, what that did, it's tightened our lean supply here. And so we do have lean supply coming in and virtually all of our imports are coming in as 90% grinding beef. Mm -hmm. That comes in, it gets blended with the 50-50, we make lean patties. Now, as a rancher, I say, well, I used to hate it when I'd take cold cows to the auction and get 32 cents a pound. And I'd say, if we could shut off these imports, my cold cows wouldn't be 32 cents a pound. Yeah. That's a little harder argument to make today when cold cows are $1.10 plus <laughs> <Yeah>. per pound. <laughs> right? We simply do not have enough. We simply do not have enough. And and there's a couple of things to consider. You could say, well, in a perfect world, we would export but not import. And that would give us maximum demand for our product. Well, you're not going to get any trade deals done if you say we want to export, but we're not willing to import. And it's the same for our partners as well. You know, the door kind of swings both ways. But what's good news for us is those imports really have a small sized impact compared to the outsized impact of our exports. And so as a producer, like I say, you want to sell every pound of beef for the highest value anywhere in the world. Hamburger is our lowest cost product. It is the least, it's Mm -hmm. the cheapest product we make. Mm -hmm. And so in effect, yeah, we allow those imports in, we export. And and I think there's some room for concern about imports. I Mm -hmm. get a little nervous when I see USDA approving uh, Paraguay for Mm -hmm. import based on a risk assessment that they've done a few years ago, like eight years ago. (laughs) And we have to be careful. We need to protect this industry from disease. And I'm all about that. And I think we need to be very careful and and we need to scream when we need to scream about the safety of imports. But when we're talking about this Canadian beef coming in, Australia, Mexico, we've got pretty good safety profiles in place. Disease risk is pretty low. Yeah, that stuff comes. But like I say, it's kind of a hard argument to make when coal cows and coal bulls are up in that dollar ten, dollar twenty cent range. Yeah, uh, I'll I'll get back to that in just a little bit. But you also mentioned a, a real big concern that a lot of ranchers voice, and that is the beef that's being brought in from some of these countries that are a little suspect. And when we start talking about foot and mouth and BSE and some of these issues like that, so is there anything going into place that's gonna that's going to oversee that or, 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 I mean, are we just going to kind of subjected ourselves on this global market to those beef imports coming in? I mean, what do you see us moving forward from the, maybe the government side of things controlling some of that, or are they going to control some of these places that are a little suspect? Yeah. So we have a system in place, right? And USDA approves product based on risk and risk assessments. 
And uh, the USDA is pretty thorough. When they go and approve a foreign plant, they go and audit that plant, they inspect that plant. We've had a number of Mexican beef plants get approved in the last couple of years. Those are all under USDA audit. And like I say, Mexico, we're not a real disease risk there. But uh, Brazil has become a major shipper beef to us now. They're shipping a lot of beef. Now, the the good news for us with Brazil is there's a 60,000 ton quota, which isn't very much that we share with everyone that we don't have an FTA with, including Brazil. So Brazil ships now in the first three months of the year, they fill that quota. Every pound they ship after that's a 26% tariff. And so the Brazilian beef comes in in Q1 and then that tariff really puts the brakes on them. Sure. But uh, the concern really isn't economics or product, the concern is safety. And so Brazil has some protocols in place that USDA audits. Now, I think it's good that we all keep USDA's nose to the grindstone to say, look, we got an industry to protect. USDA understands that. It isn't a political issue. It's it's USDA administration. Yeah. But I think it's good as an industry that we keep pressure on and say, look, those states down there that are not FMD free, we can't be bringing that beef in. And so that's been the game. And that's kind of how it's been done is there are certain states that are eligible to export and certain states that aren't. Mm-hmm. Now, Brazil is well on the path to eradicating FMD. They've got states to export beef to us. They have to, that state has to quit vaccinating for a year with no cases. That's a big gamble, right? If you're a state that's borderline and you quit vaccinating for a year, you got to go a year with no cases. And so I think there's some pretty good safeguards in place, but I do know that USDA is looking at approving Paraguay. Uh, Paraguay has a little different record, mm-hmm. you know, and you and I know we don't take people at face yeah. value on, hey, these are okay and these cattle are okay and these aren't. We got to be careful with that. And so I appreciate the efforts of the industry in saying, hey, we need updated risk assessments. We need boots on the ground, not eight years ago. We need boots on the ground this year mm-hmm. to approve that system. Mm-hmm. A bit ago, you were talking a little bit about our market and, and, and the fact that when we are seeing cold cow prices over a dollar a pound, it's hard to really see a lot of fault in the market right now. But when they dip down and we were, you know, we're 45 cents a pound, 67 cents a pound as we were just as of almost a year and a half ago, mm. when, when these markets make a cycle downwards is when we really start to get critical and, and we start hearing the global market and the imports and the exports, that conversation really come to light even more. And when things are good, we're, we're not belly aching. When things are tough, then we're really seeing a lot of things in the market. So, and I'm not I'm not wanting the market to go down, but at some point we're going to see the, a cycle that moves us down. As ranchers, what is the perspective we need to be thinking about when these markets go the other way? Well, like I said, Justin, you can't have you can't have exports without imports. You can't say we're only going to export, but we don't want any imports. There's no country in the world that really works that way, and it's all give and take. And so, all I can tell you is when those times are tough and you feel that weight, saying, "Hey, our cold cows aren't worth as much." You got to remember that export portal that lets you export that this mm-hmm. system in place says you export beef at $1.50 a pound more than you import it. And so if you could make a wave a magic wand and say, fine, shut the borders, we're going to do our own thing. We're all going to be worse off. Mm-hmm. The fact that we're importing and the fact that we're exporting is a net benefit to every rancher in America in the good times and bad. Because like I say, we're able to go source the highest price bid on every cut and we backfill with some very low value 90s grindy beef yeah. to mix for fast food hamburgers. Yeah. Now we could shut that off. Say you could wave a magic wand and shut it off. What's going to happen to fast food restaurants when we say, okay, we're shutting off imports and they simply don't have enough? Yeah, they'll probably pay a little bit more for ours, but they'll bid ours up to the price where it hits chicken breast and then they'll say, from now on, it's chicken breast, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, there's only so much. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that imported 90% lean probably doesn't hurt us as bad as people like to squeal about. Mm-hmm. And I know when markets are down, it's an easy it's an easy target to to blame imports. But you got to remember what those exports are doing for us every day. Well, and, and just a real quick side note here, and that is that, and I think for a lot of us as ranchers, we do know that we're as you represent. A lot of folks in the protein market. So when we say protein, we're not just talking beef, pork and poultry as well. So you kind of touched that a little bit ago and that we have to be very aware that there's that time when we are at the end of the day, we are still competing with the other proteins out there on a price point. Isn't, and that's kind of what you're referring to there. 
You bet. Absolutely. And so as we look at that, just real quickly, what are you seeing in the other protein markets that is affecting our beef market here today from a global standpoint? Yeah, what's interesting when I look at price, especially like the U.S. retail price, everybody gets worried and says, "Okay, are we heading into a recession? We've got this heavy inflation. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be a recession? And that's always a, a viable concern. What COVID did and the real impact that maybe people don't truly appreciate, COVID put $7 trillion in the U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. It increased our money supply 44% in two and a half years. That means like one third of all money in circulation today wasn't in circulation three years ago. It is shocking what that did. It wasn't the virus. It was the economic reaction of a blank check government, right? They just yeah. flooded our market with money. But what that did for retail prices, you can look at beef, pork, and poultry. All three retail prices are 30% higher than they were pre-COVID. And you can go for a three-year average pre-COVID. Consumers are now paying 30% more for beef, pork, and poultry at retail. And so, yeah, that that's our inflation hedge, right? All our costs are going up, but consumers are paying way more. Well, then the challenge becomes, well, what about retail margin? What about packer margin? Right. The consumers are paying more, but am I getting more? Mm -hmm. And for a few years, that's felt tough. Now, this year, we're seeing a huge shift in leverage. And that comes, Justin, when we have fewer cattle than shackles at the plant. When we start shrinking this herd, all the leverage goes back to the guy who is raising calves. And so where we saw those packer margins go up six hundred, eight hundred dollars ahead, that margin's coming right back into calf prices over the next year. And it's going to be heartwarming to watch. Yeah. Well, and it, it's a concern and we really need that margin to stay in place or, or grow because, you know, interest rates on operating lines or or whatever is going to your fuel, our fuel prices. I mean, our inputs definitely have seen a dramatic jump. So we really do need these oh, calf yeah. prices to be higher this next year. Yeah. Again, my guest today is Brett Stewart. He is the founding partner of Global Agri Trends. We're going to continue when we come back. We're going to come back in a little bit and look more at the U.S. market side of things. Stay with us. You're listening to the Working Ranch Radio Show. A sustainable ranch is one that can do more with less. And for beef producers, it can start right at the herd level with a cow that's efficient with her resources and environment. And in today's modern industry, Gelvy females are the picture of sustainability. Gelvy and Balancer cattle are early maturing with maternal superiority through increased longevity, added fertility, and more pounds of calf wean per cow exposed. Adaptable, versatile, and sustainable. All factors that have a positive impact on your bottom line. Gelvy influenced females, the smart, reliable, and profitable maternal choice for achieving sustainability in today's modern beef industry. Be sustainable, breed Gelvy. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. My guest today is Brett Stewart. He is a founding partner of Global Agri-Trends. We have been talking in our program here today, uh, really looking at our beef industry from a global aspect. And if you missed the first two segments, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that as we talked about some of the dynamics that we are seeing on a global front and how that is affecting our market here in the United States. In addition to uh, Brett just giving us, filling us in about a little little bit about why we do see an import market in the U.S. as we as we sometimes wonder, you know, why are we importing beef when we've got all the beef in the world uh, that we need here? Why, why do we need to import? And talking about how that works really and understanding the dynamics that our U.S. industry is part of a global market in the United States is one of the three biggest uh, exporters in the world in terms of beef exports. And as he as he pointed out earlier, that uh, really the corn fed uh, beef is U.S. really has that locked in as we are one of the major suppliers of that in China being a major market for our beef the, in, here on the global front. Brett, let's dial in a little bit. Uh, the U.S. market is really picking up. As you and I talked before we went on air, I, I was we branded last weekend and visiting with uh, my brother's uh, father-in-law that came down from North Dakota and talking about he, how he had contracted his calves over $3 a pound on five and a quarter weight steers. This market is really picking up. Is it going to stay with us? Well, it's, it's fantastic to see, Justin. And I know in the cattle world, there are a lot of years you work for nothing. And uh, this cattle industry is about to get paid. And it's, it's looking good. So 
You go back, and this shouldn't really surprise anyone. We've been talking about this for two years. You know, two years ago, we saw those major droughts in the Dakotas and Montana. Last year, that drought migrated right south into Texas, Oklahoma, Southern Plains. That drought extended even into this summer. Even this this spring, it's been really dry in eastern Nebraska, some of those areas. So the bulk of the U.S. cattle world and all of the West has been in drought pretty severe at one point or another during this big La Nina. So the La Nina is the drought pattern that hits us um, two and a half years. It's the longest La Nina period we've had by a factor of two. Mm -hmm. And so it's pretty extreme. By historical standards, we have had extreme drought across the cattle country. And as a result, we've liquidated, oh, by USDA's numbers, 1.9 million beef cows as of last January in two years. Wait till this next January. I think we're going to be down two and a half million cows. Mm -hmm. And so you take those cows out of production and you shrink this herd and we all know what happens, right? For one thing, the supply is tightened and the price goes up, but two, the leverage moves. And so think about it. When there are more cattle than there are shackles in a packing plant, those packers don't have to bid. They can sit back and make margin. But all of a sudden, when there's fewer cattle than shackles, they have to bid everything to try and keep their plants going. And and I'm not here to just beat on the packer, but it's a little bit heartwarming <laughs> to see after the last couple of years. I'm okay with that, right? Yeah. We're seeing this leverage change. And so those are the two things that happens. Now, we just saw a major weather pattern shift Mm -hmm. from La Nina to El Nino. So that'll be a lot more moisture coming across the U.S. It's a little slow to come. There's a big cold water front off the coast of California. But what I'm saying here, Justin, this fall, it sure looks to me like we're going to have more rain and this tightened market is shifting leverage. And just to your point, these calf markets, this cattle price, we're going to see fireworks. And we all know what happens when you see rain plus high calf prices. And that means expansion mm-hmm. and with the, with the cattle world. So think about it, Justin. So this fall you're weaning calves and you go, shoot, I'm keeping some heifers. This thing's good, right? Mm-hmm. So you keep those heifers to breed in 2024 to calve in 2025. They won't put more beef on the market till 2026. And so over the next three years, we're going to tighten supplies even further. Right now, our slaughter, we've been running for the last six months. The average has been 53% of our slaughter is females. Until you get that ratio down below 48, you're not really expanding. Mm -hmm. So we're still technically contracting. We're still liquidating. And so the highest prices we'll see are when we get that slaughter ratio down below 48. That'll probably be well into late next year. Mm -hmm. So as good as these prices look this fall, what I'm telling you, my bet is we're not going to see the highs in this market until 2024 or maybe even 2025. Okay. So as we look at this and begin to look ahead and try to forecast on this as ranchers, you know, you said, okay, let's look at that slaughter ratio, kind of be aware of that number. Are we at that 40, you know, when we get to 48%, then we see that we're probably in uh, below 48%. We're maybe in a little bit of an expansion market. If we go out and work through this in the next five years out, I guess what I'm asking essentially is, is there any element in this that we just need to be a little concerned about. I mean, I don't want to, I, I, I guess I'm not trying to throw cold water. I appreciate, I'm glad about the, the market that's coming up here, but from a ranching perspective, I don't want to, I don't want to dig a hole that I can't get out of. So what are some things that I should be aware of as we're looking ahead in these times that are predicting some great markets for us? Yeah. I've had some people say, you know, what could wreck it? And it feels like every time in the cattle world, you just see this mirage off in the distance. <laughs> yeah. Something comes along and wrecks it. And uh, I would say I'm a lot more confident on this one than I normally am. Okay. There's not a lot to reckon. Now, one thing I don't know if people realize, we've got the the cow herds, it's in decline. The beef production is going to decline next year. USDA forecasts it down, what, 8%. We're going to take per capita, think about this, next year's production decline will be the biggest production decline of U.S. beef in 45 years. That die is already cast. That's because of the cowherd liquidation. So really, we can't change that. The only thing that changes that is if we have prolonged drought. If something changes and we get real dry and we keep killing cows, then that production's not going to drop yet, but it's going to drop further out in the future. So next year, based on everything we're looking at, we're going to take 8.7 pounds per capita away from every man, woman, and child in America. Mm-hmm. Almost nine pounds per capita, that's over two years. 
Now, in the swine world, and what you may not realize, the swine world is in shambles right now. The hog world's in trouble. Hogs are losing money, and the futures curve does not give them any profit for 12 more months. Hmm. And so we're going to be going through some liquidation in the swine herd as well, which tells us next year's pork production is going to be smaller than this year's. Hmm. For a very different reason, they're in liquidation as well. The poultry guys, they're kind of stair-step steady. They're always growing a little bit. Um, a lot of this comes down just into what happens to corn. And a week ago, I was really nervous about yeah. that Midwest corn crop, but yep. it sounds like over this last weekend, there was a lot of rain across the corn belt. And I'll tell you, every penny that comes off of that corn price is going to go into a calf price. And uh, so if we'll see where the corn is. Brazil just is in the middle of a second crop harvest. They're going to have record corn production this year. Um, if we can get a good corn crop in and take some steam off of corn price, that even helps us further. Mm -hmm. So when we, you talked a little bit in the previous segment, a little bit about uh, inflation, you know, the recession stuff, do you see any of that coming into affecting us from a domestic market here a little bit? I, I, I mean, we did see the view on beef, I think was very favorable coming out of COVID, but people are only going to be able to give a certain amount and then things got to change. I mean, we're just, we, we all financially have to make those decisions. Do you see anything with where we're headed from a, from an inflation standpoint that would affect our domestic market? market. Yeah, and we know that there's consumer stress rising, right? The COVID money isn't going to last forever. Um, as Americans, we probably all spend it a little irresponsibly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People are going to come to that reckoning of going, hey, I've got some decisions to make. And so you look at recession and what does recession do to us? I went back and looked at the last eight recessions clear back to January 1970. And what I've done, Justin, I've taken the retail beef price each month from the beginning month of the recession to the end of the recession. The worst recession we ever had, beef prices, the retail beef price fell 5% from the beginning of the recession to the end of the recession. That was in 1973. Okay. 2008, probably the biggest recession, well, obviously the biggest recession of our lifetimes, maybe the best one to compare it to. I mean, people were losing their homes, they were losing their cars. The retail beef price, if you start on month one of that recession, by month nine of that recession, the retail beef price, it went up 10%. And by the end of the recession, it ended up up 4%. It never went negative. The retail price of beef did not decline through the 2008 recession. Now you think, how on earth is that possible? We saw those high-end steakhouses close right during yeah. the 2008 recession. Mm -hmm. So you got to remember, Retail beef price includes high-priced tenderloins and lean grindy beef and hamburger. But that blended price, what I'm telling you, beef is relatively recession-proof when you look at that blended price in retail. And when consumers are forced into the grocery stores, they look and make better decisions than they do in the, in the restaurant buying that $30 tenderloin. And so, yeah, we'll see some differentiation in cuts when we see consumer pressure. But what I'm telling you is beef is largely recession proof, at least at the retail price level. Mm -hmm. We're about to wrap up here a little bit. And so as we head into that bread, did I miss anything? Like, did I miss something that you continually get asked that is a concern for us as ranchers? Well, I think there's some things to be aware of. You know, the climate policy thing is not over. Mm -hmm. Animal welfare stuff, that's not over. Um, those things are becoming more real, and uh, that's probably a whole other topic for another day. But I would I would argue that there's probably more opportunities than threats in some of that stuff. I look out 10 years. So if I look mm -hmm. at the 10-year forecast for global meat and poultry supplies, over the last 20 years, the world grows about 5 million tons a year in beef, pork, and poultry production. And that's the same as consumption on an annual basis. So we're eating about 5 million tons more every year. If I look at the FAO forecast the next 10 years, and I think they're too high, they're showing we're going to grow 3.8 million tons a year over the next two years. We're falling short of demand. And I've run some of our own internal models based on per capita consumption, based on GDP and population. My 10-year forecast said we're only going to produce half the growth needed of beef over the next 10 years. I forecast we're going to need 8 million tons more beef the next 10 years and the world for what I think we're going to produce is about 4 million tons. So I think the global, the global winds are blowing in our sail. I think we've got some good reasons for optimism. Absolutely. Inflation's heavy and I know costs are high, but like I say, I think there's a real opportunity here the next, and I'm not just saying next year, I think the next three to five years for this industry to recapitalize 
make smart decisions and say, how do I position myself for growth in the Mm -hmm. future? There are good days ahead. Yeah. And just because of that comment that you said there about that shortfall that's going to be said, I want to ask another question here. We were kind of running out of time here, but I I do want to ask this question. So who's going to fill that gap? Yeah. So that's the, when I show the slides and I go through that model and I show this huge gap, it's a, it's a much bigger gap for pork and poultry, but it's also a gap for beef. People always ask that, is that going to be alt protein? And I laugh and say, absolutely not. What it's going to be is less protein. Hmm. I mean, what we don't produce, people don't have to eat that much beef or pork or poultry. And we're seeing it in Europe right now. European swine herd is, is down what, 6 million sows over 15 years. They're just eating less. And so uh, if all protein has been a farce, it's been proven, consumers have flatly rejected it. Mm-hmm. Beyond Meat stock price went from $250 plus a share. It's like $12, $13 a share now. Mm-hmm. Those are industries that everybody guessed wrong. Betting on all meat was a terrible guess. That's another thing I think it's heartwarming to watch, the complete demise of these alt protein. They're just not there. And so what's going to fill it? I say less meat. People just aren't going to have as much to eat. And that's price supportive to us. Mm -hmm. Wow. Interesting. Brett, we could probably go on for another 30 minutes (laughs) on some of this stuff. I, I appreciate your insight on this. And your expertise in the market, uh, you bring a lot of background to this. Um, appreciate the fact that, as you were saying when we started here, uh, you know, you grew up on a ranch in Utah and, and Wyoming border there and grew up doing that and, and know about that from the rancher's perspective. So I appreciate you joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Good to be with you, Justin. I'd just say if anybody wants, if you, I'll send you a free newsletter. Go on to agritrends.com, A-G-R-I-T-R-E-N-D-S.com. If you want to get plugged in, we can shoot you some information. You bet. Thanks for having me, Justin. Good to be on with you. Today. Yeah, you bet, Brett. I appreciate it. Folks, I will put a link also in our podcast description of where you can get to his uh, to their to their website. And like he said, they've got that newsletter. This is the kind of stuff we need to, as ranchers, need to be aware of. Uh, we sometimes, as we talked about in the very beginning, of the show we kind of get buried in our day-to-day stuff but you always got to keep one eye up and one ear out on what's going on in the marketplace and i appreciate brett stewart with global agritrends joining us here today to talk on our global market their website again is globalagritrends.com we'll stay with us coming up after the break meteorologist don day steps in as we take a look at our long-term weather we'll be back on the working ranch radio show after this Do you have a young child, grandchild, niece, or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more? Dayweather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts, fun weather experiments, coloring pages, and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year. The weather journal is for ages 3 to 7 and designed to be fun and educational. The interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in. For only $10, the Dayweather weather journal is a great gift idea for any occasion. Click on our Amazon link to order at dayweather.com. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills as we head now into taking a look at our long-term weather today. Brought to you by AllFlex. Cattle identification and record keeping should be easy. So now you can tie your visual tag, your EID tag, and your genetic data to one management number with the AllFlex match sets. If you want to find out more, go to their website at allflexusa.com. And joining us as he does each and every week is meteorologist Don Day. And Don, last week, uh, you gave us kind of an update in terms of why we are not seeing that summer monsoon, North American monsoon kick in. And we are seeing some hot, dry temperatures down in Texas and up into the Midwest. But it sounds like as we head into July, that could be changing for those folks a bit. Yeah, what we're likely going to see for the next seven days or so is going to be a continuation of very hot, humid conditions, especially in central and west Texas. And that extends into New Mexico as well. And one reason for that is we just have a big old high down there, a big area of high pressure. But it's also a high pressure system where the clockwise circulation, the wind pattern going around that high is tapping into air right out of the deserts of Mexico and pushing it right up into Texas and into the southern plains there. And we had talked about the lack of the monsoon getting started in Mexico in the desert southwest. So the air it's bringing in is not cooled off a bit by afternoon clouds or afternoon showers or thunderstorms. So that's one reason why that that heat and humidity is so extreme. And the pattern is going to be stubborn here for 
about another week. But what we should see developing is a subtle western shift to that high pressure ridge in the south, going more towards, uh, let's say, the desert southwest. And that will allow somewhat of a, a reprieve from the heat into central and some areas of western Texas as we get into that first week of July. Mm -hmm. But until then, it's going to be a little insufferable down there with continued heat and a lot of humidity. Mm -hmm. Well, and the moisture really has been centered and it started clear back in last winter in the northwest and the west of the Rockies part of the country. Are they going to continue to see when that weather shifts and we start to see them cool down a bit? What's it going to look like in the northern tier of the country that has seen some moisture? Well, those areas for another week will continue to get more showers and thunderstorms. So it'll continue to be wet at times, you know, especially Montana, uh, parts of Wyoming. And I do see both Dakotas, especially the central and western parts of those Dakotas, central and western Nebraska, central and western Kansas and eastern Colorado continuing to have shower and thunderstorm chances. As that high shifts westward, though. I do see some of the warmest temperatures of the season going into some of those western areas that are cool and wet right now. So that's going to change things up. So so patterns are changing slowly, mm -hmm. but I think by early July, the pattern across the United States will certainly have a different look to it, especially in the central and western United States. Mm -hmm. Okay. An area that we don't focus on a whole lot here is we tend to, seems like a lot of the weather news is always mainly out of the west or the Midwest we're talking about. What about the southeast part of the country? When we look in, the, in there, uh, what does it look like for them in the next seven days? Well, I tell you, they have been cooler than average and wet. And we expect that to continue. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, if you look at the way things have shaped up so far in this month of June, um, you know, the, the Texas heat is making the headlines. But the, most of the United States, the a large part of the West and a large part of the East has actually had a cooler than average June. And the Southeast has been one of those areas. Uh, and it's been a pattern where rain has been prolific. And for this next week, since the pattern isn't changing much, they're going to continue to see more of the same. Now, as that high shifts east, rather to the west in early July, that may change things up a little bit along the east coast and the southeastern United States. Uh, but at the moment, you know, we don't see anything really hot coming into the southeastern United States, at least between now and early July. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, that's a good, uh, gives us an idea of what we're anticipating as we head into the 4th of July week and appreciate the update here on our long-term weather. Sounds good. And again, that was meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. His website can be found at dayweather.com where you can find his daily video podcast that kicks out every Monday through Friday morning. Our weather today brought to you by Allflex. Find out more at allflexusa.com. Stay with us. We'll put a wrap on this week's edition of the Working Ranch radio show after this. Well, before we head out, I just want to remind you that the summer edition of Working Ranch magazine is already out. And if you don't have it, I'm guessing you probably don't have a subscription yet. And folks, you're missing out. Go check it out. Uh, if you haven't got a subscription, you can go to workingranchmag.com and you can get it started today. Now, a full of a lot of great articles as it is in every issue. Rancher's Journal, check it out. I'll tell you what, I was impressed by this young lady, Marley Scarborough, representing her family's fifth generation ranch located in Hayes. South Dakota. Take a read for yourself. I'm not going to say any more. You will be impressed with this young lady as well as I was. Thank you to our sponsors here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. All Flex, Inherit Select from Zoetis, the American Gelby Association, MLS Tubs, and Tank Toe. The Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine, branded number one by America's Ranchers. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is justin.workingranch at gmail.com. Or you can also send me a text at 307-363-COWS. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right here at the same time, same place next week or on your favorite podcast provider. I'm your host, Justin Mills. And until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long. <laughs>